The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. This may be somewhat of a, a broad generalization, but here in America, we are obsessed with more. I know that that is, again, broad generalization. However, I think we can see it in our everyday life. Even in our heart of hearts, we recognize the fact that, man, we just have this need, this desire for more, to have better, to do better. We want a bigger house. We want a different kind of car. We want, we want, we want. Um, we want to look better. We want to feel better. We want to smell better. Right, Wayne? Like, we want to act better. We want to perform better. We just want to be better. So as a, as a natural byproduct of wanting more, let's be honest, we, we also expect more, right? In our society, we have a high bar for customer service. We have a high value um, in the things that we do, and we find a lot of satisfaction in that. So when we go to the restaurant, we expect, I'm going to get good service. They're going to top off my drink. I'm going to order. It's going to arrive hot within X amount of time. I, I remember just even watching the video was reminding me, Last year in Uganda, <laughs> we ordered dinner. It was like 10 o'clock at night, and it took two, over two hours to get our food. And it was such a great picture of the ugliness of our hearts as a missions team. Because <laughs> here we are, we're like, we're in this third world country. Like, they are preparing and like working really hard for us to prepare this food. And we're just like, oh, food kidding me? Two hours? Did they have to go kill the cow first before we... Ah. So we have really, really high expectations. And, and, and here, at least for us, we expect that they're going to do it right. When you order a venti iced soy half-calf frappuccino with whip and extra chocolate drizzle, very simple, you expect to get a venti iced soy half-calf frappuccino with whip and extra drizzle. Okay, so we can understand that, like, this is just kind of a part of who we are. We're very, we're privileged. And with that privilege, we want more, and we want better, and we want that all the time. We have high expectations. Let's just take a moment and look at some of the, the top logos and brands um, today. ESPN, Disney, Best Western, Hulu, Google iPhone Plus, what, what do all these brands, what does all this marketing have in common? Plus, hey, man, not only do we provide a good product, not only do you have a, a massive computer in our pockets, but you want the big one, right? We want more. We want it faster. We expect that we're going to get great value. We expect it to be good. It's a part of our culture, particularly here we want more freedom. We want more flexibility. We want more sovereignty. We want more free enterprise. And yet on the same hand, we, we have high expectations in terms of like we want more control in certain areas, and more requirements, stipulation. We want more. We want more cowbell. You want... Uh, you can never have too much cowbell. Am I right? So it should not come as a surprise to us that... When talking about the gospel or talking about living a Christian life, we, we just almost inerrantly want to add more. 
more is better, right? Specifically, when we talk about what's necessary in order to become saved, is more better? Here at Heritage, we have faithfully taught that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. We've been given the opportunity as adopted sons and daughters to join into his family, and all we have to do is believe, right? But don't we overcomplicate it? Don't we usually add stipulations, add requirements, unspoken expectations of people to both the believer as well as the non-believer? Would you indulge me for a moment? If, if you don't have a notebook out or something to write with, would you grab a piece of paper or borrow one from your neighbor? On that piece of paper, would you write down what you expect a follower of Jesus to look like? Better yet, write, write down just one word that symbolizes a life lived for Jesus. Would that word perhaps... Um, involve music, perhaps. Now, I'm not talking Maranatha music. I'm not talking Kenny G. How about the rap out there? Secular music, Christian music. How about movies? PG-only lifetime movies? Language. Do those factor into what we think is necessary, is prudent for the Christian, for the Christian life? How about drinking, daily devotions, the study of God's word, homeschooling versus public schooling, abstinence until marriage, tithing an entire 10% of your income, not watching pornography or reading explicit romance novels, any number of other things we can think of when talking about the good Christian in our modern context. We will be solving this equation this morning. Jesus plus what equals salvation? Now, I don't mean to, uh, this is not rhetorical. We, a lot of us who have walked with the Lord, we know the answer to this, right? But in the context of Acts chapter 15, they didn't necessarily know the answer to that yet. And as you'll see, the answer is nothing but don't we have almost an unconscious proclivity to add more to this equation? Now, I wasn't super great in math, but I want us to get this equation right. I want us to get this math problem right, okay? So this morning, we're going to methodically work our way through the book of Acts in, 15, in Acts 15. And I'm going to ask your grace for something. Even already, I feel like I may have already offended somebody. Um, but likely, we're going we're gonna to touch on a couple of kind of hot-button hot topics as we work through this. So I would just ask for your grace in how I relay that information. I would also ask that you would allow the Holy Spirit to, to work in you this morning. Perhaps He wants to challenge you in something. Perhaps He wants to, to buck against the cultural system that, that we're constantly bombarded with. So would you do that for me this morning? In Acts 15, we find ourselves in the midst of a pivotal decision. The gospel is at the very heart of a debate that is raging just outside of Jerusalem. In the city of Antioch, the question of more comes up. 
Specifically, what must a Gentile do in order to be saved? Jesus plus what equals salvation? This is the question for us to wrestle through this morning. We bow your heads and let's pray with me. Most holy God, we come before you this morning and we do come humbly because, Lord, we desire to hear from you. We desire to submit our hearts to you. That's why we're here. Heaven forbid, Lord, we come because we just do it out of ritual or out of requirement. Check it off of the list. No, heaven forbid. Holy Spirit, would you be present this morning? Would you mold us and shape us into the image of Christ? In Jesus' name, amen. So in Acts chapter 15, we find ourselves at the end of Paul's first massive missionary journey. The church of Antioch from the very beginning was a very diverse group of people. By way of review, after the persecution of Stephen, remember the the disciples, the the God followers kind of dispersed, and it said that um, the the apostles, they, they went out and they shared the good news specifically with the Jews. But then there was also a small group of men from Cyprus and Cyrene that traveled to Antioch, and they shared the gospel with the Hellenistic Jews. Do you remember this? Jeremy shared this with us weeks ago. They also shared with the Gentiles, non-Jews. So a revival breaks out in Antioch. Okay, so Jerusalem, being kind of the the center hub of Christianity at that time, they, they go, oh, there's something going on down here. Let's send Barnabas send Barnabas to go down and check it out and validate. Is this good or do we need refinement over here? So Barnabas goes down and he's like, man, the Holy Spirit is alive and is moving in this church. People are getting saved. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. And uh, so he goes and he finds Paul and they come back and they minister to Antioch for a time. They build this church up. From there, they're called by the Holy Spirit uh, into their first missionary journey. They travel some about 500 miles away. They're going to every town. They're preaching the word. Men, women, children, Gentiles, and Jews are both being saved. And they loop back around, and once they reach Antioch, a disagreement breaks out. All right, so by way of just introduction, in terms of breaking the, the passage down, we can see in Acts 15, there's, there's two primary conflicts that we find. The first is the conflict over grace, over salvation. Grace disputed, defended, displayed, and defined. And then we've got a conflict over ministry philosophy. This is between Paul and Barnabas and who should go with them on their missionary journey, okay? So we're going to leave this up just for a moment, just by way of, so you guys kind of can follow exactly how the, this, this chapter is outlined. But conflict, conflict is a part of everyday life right? Man, the older I get, it is amazing. It seems like the intervals between conflict (laughs) just get smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's a part of our everyday life. But can I encourage you, brother and sister, particularly in the areas of the gospel, let's lean into conflict Let's work through our conflict together for the good of the gospel. We're going to see that today, and we're going to see steps being taken to try to both provide clarity as well as provide unity. 
So that's what we see in Acts chapter 15. So we lean in and let's, let's read together, starting in verse 1 through verse 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia, Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So what's, what's going on here? Well, there's some Jewish Christians who are also Pharisees. And they're having a hard time with all these people who are now saying, claiming that they're following Jesus. Verse 5 says that they need to be circumcised and they need to follow the ritualistic laws, right? But before we just jump to the kind of my natural default is I hear the word Pharisee and I go, okay, so whatever precedes Pharisee, I know is just like, if this is where they're going, like we need to be going this way, right? But before we jump to that conclusion, let's consider some of the very legitimate reasons that they bring up this concern in the first place. Their entire history passed down from their great, 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 great grandfathers all say that the Jewish people are God's holy and chosen people, right? Set apart and chosen. God comes to Abraham in Genesis 15 and says, I will from you create a people of my own possession. I will call you out and I will save you, my people. The old covenant people were Jewish. Christianity was a messianic movement that was foretold in the Old Testament. The first Christians that were filled by the Holy Spirit were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Why now, all of a sudden, is it okay that non-Jewish people are becoming saved? For their entire history, Gentiles who wanted to become a follower of the one true God would go through a process of circumcision as well as obedience to the moral and ritual laws of Moses, as outlined in Leviticus 10 through 15. The argument being made in Antioch, a church that's primarily made up of Gentiles, what the Gentiles were not saved, but that they had to first become Jews. Okay, so does that, does that make sense? There's a, there's a shift happening here, which is really easy just to kind of overlook because we've, we've read this story so many times. We've, we've seen this. We know this. Well, Paul and Barnabas... They just stir stuff up, uh, which ultimately leads to what they call in Christian history the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council has been described by David Peterson as the the turning point, the centerpiece, the watershed of the book of Acts, the episode which rounds off and justifies all the past developments. So the whole book of Acts to this point, particularly chapters 8 through 14, and then makes all of the future converts intrinsically possible. So what does the Jerusalem Council address? Two primary issues. We've already read them in verse 5. Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved and to follow the Messianic law. So really, Jesus plus what is required for the Gentiles to be saved? As it pertains to the the Mosaic law, this doctrinal question, so this this is a question of doctrine, 
it poses a very serious practical question as well, right? Because the Gentiles, just their eating habits alone would defile the Jewish Christians at, at that time as well. So the potential ramifications of this were so serious and far-reaching that a council was formed. Okay, this is very formal. It's not just like, hey, Paul said this, so we're going to do this. So Paul and Barnabas aren't having it. There is no small dissension. <laughs> when the Bible says that, like, it, the wheels fell off, right? Paul and Barnabas are like, no way. We've traveled 500 miles round trip. We've seen with our very own eyes the fact that God is moving, the Holy Spirit is moving, and he's moving in these people. So they're like, no, this is, like, this is not happening, right? So there was no little dissension among them. So a group is sent up to Jerusalem to work it out. So let's read uh, verses 6 through 19. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up, no surprise, and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So, Peter, the first at bat in this thing, steps up to the plate, drops some serious truth bombs into the mix, he first addresses the question of whether or not the Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved. He's like, guys, I didn't choose this. Like, this wasn't my call. This is above my pay grade. God did not require it when he poured out his spirit on Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. So in verse 7 here, we see that God, he says, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, Peter's mouth, the Gentiles should hear and believe. If you remember back to chapter 10, where Peter receives a vision, do you remember this? He receives a vision of a white sheet being lowered from the heavens. At the four corners, there's animals, reptiles, and birds. And God says what? He says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, whoa paradigm exploding here. Like, I don't get it. I'm a good Christian Jewish boy. Like, I've been circumcised. I've fallen the ritualistic laws. Like, I don't, I don't want to eat that. And God says, uh, it says, don't call anything that I call clean, unclean, or common. What God has made clean, do not call common. So you remember the rest of the story. Cornelius and his entire family hear the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls on them right then and there. Peter's like, ah, uh, I, I wasn't planning on this. <laughs> it says he was, like, perplexed. When he sees that vision, he goes and meets with Cornelius' his family, and he just pretty much goes, well, I guess this is what God's doing. He says, does anybody see any reason why we shouldn't just go and baptize these right now since the Holy Spirit just fell on them? And so they do. But clearly, some Jewish Christians were not persuaded 
and were insistent that circumcision and strict adherence to the ritual laws of the Jews were necessary for eternal salvation. So next, Peter addresses the question of, do the Gentiles really need to follow the ritualistic laws? He reminds them that in Cornelius' situation, he didn't do anything in order to abide by those laws, right? It just happened. In verse 9, it says that God cleansed their hearts by faith. This is now the defining characteristic in salvation, faith, faith alone. Peter didn't tell Cornelius to go grab the bacon out of the freezer and chuck it. Hey, that steak that's on the grill right there, let's toss that to the dogs. Like, you got to close this puppy down if you want the spirit to fall, right? The Holy Spirit came. These people were saved regardless of the rituals. They were on equal footing with the Jews now. Peter's second argument starts in verse 10 to answer the question of shouldn't they be required to keep the law of Moses? In essence, Peter says, why are we requiring the Gentiles to keep a law that I haven't been able to keep, that our grandfathers and our great-great-grandfathers have not been able to keep? The Mosaic law, my brothers and sisters, both the moral law and the ritual law was not given so that we would be saved by them. They were given so that we would recognize the need for our Savior The law does not save us. The law points out that we are broken and we are fallible and that we need a Savior. Amen? So, for those of you who didn't say amen, if for some reason you think, ah, I I got this, I I can handle it, maybe (laughs) it still doesn't count even if you say it later. Let me, just, let, me, let me just remind you of what Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5, right? We're talking about murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's those ritualistic Jewish traditions. You have heard it said, says Jesus, in these old days that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you, what? If everyone who is angry with his brother has become liable... How about lust? Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Great, I'm doing good at that so far, right? But I say to you, says Jesus, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Guys, the law does not save us. We cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We cannot perform better. We cannot be better or be better versions of ourselves in order to find favor from God. It comes from God and his son, Jesus Christ alone. By faith, by faith, the point of the gospel message is that God has done it for us already. All we have to do is believe. So in verse 12, it says, And all the assembly fell silent, and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas, they jump back in the fray. Paul just can't help himself, right? He's like, hey, we have gone through this journey. We're going to share yet again. They just keep banging this drum. Hey, we have seen firsthand, firsthand experience that God is doing something here prepares the way. So Peter begins 
The argument, testimony of Paul and Barnabas ultimately led James to claim that God had a chosen people for his name among the Gentiles. So this sets the stage for James to bring it home. Okay, so verse 13, after they had finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon, Peter, had related how God visited, how God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agreed, just as it is written. After this, I will return. I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will re- rebuild its ruins and restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble these Gentiles who turn to God. So James James uses Old Testament scripture to drive the point home. Now, there are many Old Testament passages that James could have used, but he pulls Amos 9, 11 through 12 because of the salvation historical perspective that it provides. Amos indicates that the messianic reign inaugurated by Jesus' resurrection, the David's tent being raised, all the nations, Gentiles, become included in God's blessing as God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. In other words, Jesus' coming changed everything. It changed everything. So it's no surprise that these guys are maybe a, slow, a little slow to the, to the game, or whatever, they're not understanding this has changed. Historically, followers of the one true God could become practicing Jews by physically and ritualistically becoming Jews. After the coming of Christ, the doors open to all mankind. This is good news. According to his name, there's now a new people of God and not simply a larger addition to the existing people known as Israel. The critical question, therefore, leads us to how do these two people relate to one another? Now that we have the, the profound unity in faith and faith alone in Jesus, the risen Savior, but there's a practical aspect, right? Verse 20, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, from blood, and from the ancient generations Moses has held in every city who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. <laughs> so as I, as I read this, just in terms of like continuity of thought, um, I hear like sudden car screeching brakes in my head. I hear like the clanging of, of metal being mangled together. I, I, I have envisioned like on I-5 a, a 10-car pileup. Here we are. If you're tracking with me, we've got, we've got Peter who kicks things off, and then we've got Pete, Paul and Barnabas And then we have James, and man, we're all like, these are gospel guys preaching the gospel, and we're all headed in one direction. No, circumcision is not necessary. Works are not necessary. Here we are, we're moving in this direction, and all of a sudden, James kind of throws on the brakes and throws them on hard, right? Because circumcision is not necessary, but then some of the ritualistic laws are? It seems contradictory, doesn't it? To say that you were saved by grace alone, with no need for circumcision, yet follow most of the Mosaic ritual laws. But here's the point. I want you to lean in and, and listen closely. The council here is very clear about salvation, but it's also clear that we should not do anything to harm our brothers and our sisters in their walk with Christ. Salvation, big word, justification, is guaranteed very simply by faith, right? The saving, 
the saving part. And there's sanctification, which is the, the process of becoming more and more like Christ over time. It's, it's nuanced. It's a process. Let me use probably the most customary example in our, our current context to illustrate this point. Let's say hypothetically, just hypothetically, that you're a beer guy or you're a beer gal. You love the craft beers, right? Maybe you even have dedicated space in your garage or your entire garage is made up for crafting that beer. I don't think we have anybody here like Ben or Sid or, or anybody else that may come to mind. I'm not going to name any names, but there could be those people that really enjoy the process. They enjoy the science behind it. They enjoy the creativity behind the making of that beer, right? So you and your family, let's just say I have a family over for, for dinner, right? And do we, according to Scripture, have the ability to consume alcohol? Yes, we do. It says not to be drunk with wine. It also says not to, for it to lead to debauchery. But so I could have those beers provided. And my guest comes over. Let's just use Ben as an example. Theoretically, I have Ben over. And he, he and Katie come over, and, and we're having dinner together. And he has one beer that leads to two beers, leads to three beers, and four beers. And all of a sudden, Ben is up on the dining room table. <laughs> I can't do it. You know, Katie's over there in the corner getting a face tattoo. You're just like, what is good? This escalated quickly, right? Like, do we have liberty? Do we have the freedom to enjoy those liberties? Yes, we absolutely do. But for your brother and for your sister who may have a history, Ben, I'm not saying you have a history, maybe who has a history, a sensitivity, a natural inclination to, to self-destructive behavior, maybe even a hurt because of some of those liberties. Like, shouldn't we care about those things? Shouldn't we desire to love our brothers and our sister in those things? Not because salvation is predicated upon it, but because we want what's best for them. It means laying down my rights for the good of someone else. It's, it's covenantal love, right? Our marriages are not contractual love. I will do these five things, and you will provide these five things. And if you aren't upholding these, then, then the contract is broken, right? It's covenantal. It's, I desire to pour myself out for my wife because I love her. And even if it's not being reciprocated, and we all have felt this in marriage at one time or another, Man, it's not, we don't always feel like we're receiving back what we feel like we're giving out, right? The equation feels off. We willingly submit our desires, our preferences, our needs for the sake of the other person. This is covenantal love. We want to walk with one another. We say, I love you. I care about you. I don't want to do anything to hurt you. I don't want to cause you even to, to stumble or have, have, you know, that just little seed of doubt in your mind sometimes that we have as we're talking to people, as we see people, as we look through social media, as we do everything really in life. You just have those little seeds of, of doubt, of concern over, gosh, I don't know. Should that person be doing that? We can always justify on our own side. We want to do what we can to love our brothers and sisters. So, in verses 22 through 35, 
Um, it, it goes through this very systematic process. We're not going to read it right now, but it goes through a very systematic process by which they're going to write a letter, uh, kind of penned by James, an approval by all of those that are there at the council, and they're going to send it back with representatives to say, hey, we met, we addressed it all, we are all in agreement. So in a nutshell, um, the community decides a course of action. It's very organized, it's methodical. Honestly, I love it. I, I, I hope they put it in a spreadsheet form. I just, that would have been even better to me. Um, just as a side note, I, I love seeing this. It's, it's refreshing to see things that are so important, right? This was a big debate. Things that are so important that people take them seriously. We write it down on paper. This wasn't just a verbal, hey, we're sending... Paul and Barnabas back to you, the same ones who they down in Antioch weren't really trusting, right? Where it all blew up. It wasn't like, we're going to send those guys back and they'll be like, hey, guess what mom and dad said? They said, I can, right? It's like, no, we're taking this serious. We're going to write this down. We're going to document this. I want to make a distinction here that I think is crucial. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing else, nothing more, right? Amen, church? That is, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can be a stumbling block for many people because it seems too simple. It seems silly almost how simple the salvation is. It doesn't require anything of us. However, does that also give us license to sin then? No. This is the age-old question, right? Whether it's with our youth that are like, hey, how far can I get to the line without crossing it? Or even in the darkness of our own hearts, how, how far can I push this boundary before I'm called out on it or before I should feel something about it? Just like anything in life, there are two sides to the story. There's, there's the pendulum that we should keep in mind. On one end, we've got liberty, right? On the other end, we have license or licentiousness, here in Acts 15, James in particular speaks to the fact that as Christians who have been saved by Jesus, we have certain liberties, but we should not use those liberties, obviously, to make others stumble. This is easier said than done, right? In all practicality, isn't that easier said than done? It's like, oh, I just don't want to cause my brother to stumble. But boy, there are some weak brothers and weak sisters out there. So let me ask you, why, why are we so afraid of Christian liberty? Why are we afraid of it? Why are, as I was preparing for this, man, the Holy Spirit was just pressing upon my heart, like, Aaron, really, where do you fall in this, right? There are many of us in this room that fall towards the side of conservative, prudish legalism. Why is that? I think it's because liberty is scary, There's no definitive, like, can't point to any one thing at any given time. There's no absolutes. I'm more of a black and white kind of guy, a right and wrong. There's good and evil. There's justice, and then there's abuse. I don't live in the gray very well because it is difficult to measure the amount of liberty we can have in that space, right? For those of you who know me, I'd love measurables. I, I love data. I love being able to make decisions with as much information as I can. When I worked in the hospital environment, they, they measure everything, right, to the point of nausea. But that's the environment that I come out of as I do 
some business coaching, I, I, one of the first things I look for is what is being currently measured? What are some of those things that we can look at that are being measured, evaluated, reviewed? Are there some actionable points that we can make improved progress in particular areas? But if you're not measuring it, then how do we know if there was improvement? The problem with liberty that is it's ambiguous. It's not measurable, and a lot of times it comes down to the person's relationship with Jesus, and that is scary. Do any of you struggle with this as we raise our kids? Our kids are 10, 8, and 6, but already, like, oh my word, it is so hard not to focus on that they do the right things and that they say the right things, that they know the right answers, but whose hearts are not connected at all to Jesus. We can be raising moral kids that have no depth whatsoever. That's dangerous. That scares me because it's easy to look to the outside, right? It's easy to look to behavior and be like, ha checking the boxes. We're doing it right. But when in their heart, like they need to be submitting to God, that is scary. You can't measure their heart. In 2005, there was a study that was conducted of America's youth by two sociologists. They wrote a book called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. They had a sample of 3,000 uh, American youth. And they coined this phrase, the moral, th- moral therapeutic deism, right? We've talked about this before, where these young people believe in several moral statutes, not exclusive to any major world religion, but they kind of view God as more of a divine butler cosmic therapist, an all-knowing genie, like we come when we have need, but he's just kind of out there, ethereal, we have some moral, like, objections to things, and we have a moral standard, but it's not based on, on relationship. It comes down to relationship and submission. If we are claiming that Jesus is the Lord, that he has kingship over our lives, our daily lives, then we submit to the Holy Spirit. So let's get real practical. What must somebody do to be saved in our current context? Jesus plus what is required in the kingdom? What what if a guy and a gal who are not married are here this morning and they hear the gospel message and they're, they're living together already? Can they be saved? What about the person who is actively involved in an extramarital affair, hears the gospel this morning, currently active in that sin, and says, oh, Holy Spirit, you are moving in me. Jesus, I claim you as my Lord and Savior. Can they be saved? How about the person who's an alcoholic, addicted to pornography, somebody who swears like a drunken sailor? Can they become a Christian today here in this sanctuary just by saying, I have faith. I believe in you, Jesus. We know that that is true. Praise God for that. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves or our own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which the gospel prepared for us beforehand to walk in. So, what did you write down? in your notebook. What did you write down? 
I know that we know the right answer, right? The equation is nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. I know we know that, but in our unspoken, in our dark corner of our hearts, what do we add? What do we add to the Christian life? Music, movies, language, drinking, modesty, obeying the laws of the road, like here in Acts 15 through the proceedings of the Jerusalem Council, we see clarification in two areas, that circumcision is not required for salvation, but that fellowship requires sacrifice. Guys, we need to care about those who we come in contact with, care about our brothers and sisters. It matters. It matters. It may seem insignificant, but it is not. Paul, the same Paul who attested to the saving grace apart from works in Acts 15, did go on to write a whole bunch of the New Testament, if you're not aware. And in Romans 14, it says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. James, who was our third speaker, who attested to the saving grace apart from work of circumcision in Acts 15, later in his own book in James 2, 17, says, So also faithful by itself, so faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. So isn't there a conflict? Do we, do we feel that conflict at times? I know I do. A conflict over grace versus liberty. How should it look as we work our way through life? It's difficult to resolve in our mind. At this time, I'm going to ask Mitch and the gang to come back up and close us out in worship. It requires a greater dependence upon God. It requires a close relationship with our Father. It requires dependence on His Word. It's when we go, oh, God, I know I'm saved by grace. I don't know exactly what this looks like to really live this out, to care about the, the feelings and the cares of others and still be able to live in this place of freedom and not condemnation, what, what does that look like? It looks like getting down on your hands and knees and saying, Father, will you help me? Not making a decision and having made that decision one time and now all of a sudden having a, a path to go down because I've made this decision before. I, I looked at that and I didn't get caught. I made that call and it seemed to work out okay. No. What? Lord, what do you want from me? What are you speaking to my heart? It's not based on past experience. It's based on a vibrant relationship with Jesus. He gives us his word, you guys. He gives us his word. We look at the word as in the whole of scripture, right? Now, there's the second conflict with, with Paul and Barnabas. And really, here's, here's, the, here's the, um, the main point is that Luke doesn't allude to anyone being wrong in that situation where Paul is like, no, I don't want to take John Mark with us because he bailed on the first missionary journey, right? And Barnabas is like, but he's family and we all make mistakes. Like, let's bring him along. God's sovereignty worked through that conflict to achieve his purpose in not just one but two missionary journeys, you guys. God works through the pain and the conflict. The gospel marches on. 
So don't avoid conflict, particularly when it is when the gospel is at stake. We clarify the gospel. When somebody in our lives is like, oh, you know, who's maybe not a believer, who's a new believer and says, oh, this, this is needed or this is important, isn't it, don't you think? And you have the opportunity just to say, ah, no, and not have there be any conflict. And I encourage you, lean into that conflict. Ask the Holy Spirit, would you use me in this moment to share truth, to stand up for what is really most important? Because guys, when we add anything to the gospel, we dilute the gospel. We dilute the power of the gospel when we add one thing to it. We are saved by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Let's live in that today. Jesus, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for conflict. Thank you for demonstrating how conflict can work to bring about a good result in your word. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the gospel, that it is simple, that it is powerful, that it is necessary for eternal life, and it does not, it is not Jesus plus anything. Help us to not add to your gospel and therefore dilute it. In Jesus' name.